Hi, this is Michelle Wainwright, and welcome to Creative Juicy, a podcast about the creative process, the journey to finding your voice, and tools to help creatives, aka people just like you, find inspiration, confidence, and some business savvy along the way. My career in brand and content strategy led me to collaborating with incredible creators, from photographers to directors, chefs, designers, stylists, illustrators, developers, founders, and so much more. I'm here to shine a light on the experiences of people who dare to be different, with the hopes of inspiring you to do whatever makes you feel unapologetically you. So let's get into it. This is Creative Juicy. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. I'm excited to be here. I feel like I remember back in the day watching you talk on panels and all these things. And so it's so nice for me to be interviewing you now. Oh, I am I am so, so flattered. I also feel similarly um, when we worked together years ago, we had like superlatives or like most likelies and everyone voted you most likely, like your voice to be most likely to replace Siri. Um, oh my god! I forgot you have about like this. Perfect. You have the perfect podcast voice. I completely forgot about that. That's so funny. <laughs> That's so funny. Okay. So Sid, can you first introduce yourself and describe a little a bit about what it is that you do? Sure, sure. So um, my name is Sydney Fazand. I um, I'm a social media and brand strategist. Um, For many, many years, I actually worked with Michelle um, at an agency. Um, I think, I'm not quite sure where we clocked in at. Was it six or seven years? Something along those lines. But I did spend 10 years in agency life. Um, I led and grew that digital practice, that department. We worked with a ton of big brands. Um, We organized team structures. But then in the past year, I've actually stepped down from that role, and I'm actually a full-time contractor, Um, still doing what I loved and um, knew how to do, frankly, very well um, at the agency life and in that role. Um, But it's a lot of, you know, strategy consultations, some of the bigger picture brand work, which has been super fun for me, Um, a lot of sort of like content programming and executions, and then a little bit of influencer as well. Awesome. I'm excited to talk about all the contractor stuff. But first, because I know that's a recent shift for you. But first, I guess back to the agency. I know, I mean, I obviously know a lot about you because we worked together for six years. (laughs) But I guess, how did you land the agency job? Was this what you wanted? Tell me a little more about your move to New York and, and how you landed there. Oh my gosh, I wanted to work at a PR agency so bad. And I wanted to be a publicist, like hardcore, just like that was my dream in life to be like a New York City publicist. I wanted to be like juggling phones. I guess at the time it was the Blackberry. Like I just wanted that life. Um, I actually ended up getting a social media internship at LaForce. And I remember being kind of bummed. I was like, oh man, like, you know, it kind of just felt like second fiddle. At the time, social media was like just starting to get on the map. It was like a tactic maybe for like some of the PR programs or internships that I had been doing in college. Like this was when you were excited to start a Google Plus page for brands. Like this was many, many moons ago. And I remember being a little bit of crestfallen, but I was like so determined to get to New York and I was going to do whatever I needed to do to ultimately become that publicist. And if I had to have a social media summer internship, that was what the path I would take. Um, So much happened in probably like those next two years. You know, um, I think there was a lot of like right place, right timeness 
there, you know, and just doing the simple thing, like for some of our brands that skewed a little more luxury and starting their Instagram channels in like January, 2013, that was novel new. And like someone would blog about that, you know? And so there was so much of like the race to space on social doing things first. And that was just so, so, so exciting. So I think I kind of tripped and fell into working in social media. And then it's been, um, you know, still one of those like exciting challenges to kind of like keep up with all those changes and still kind of like stay on the cutting edge. But of course, I sort of like remained in that orbit. Mm -hmm. I feel like the word like content even is a fairly new term, because even when I started, we weren't talking about content or content creation or content creators like that wasn't even in our vocabulary. It was more so what are we going to post today? And we were figuring that out just based on a library of assets we had and then writing copy that seemed to go along with it. hundred percent. You know, I think so content is a new word. I actually love that you're talking about this because I feel like some of the we have vocabulary for things now. Like we have words like creators, creator economy, attention economy, like all these like they give me tingles to be able to describe them with something now. But I feel like, you know, the industry has been around long enough to, I think, actually have that sort of like retrospection to like see trends and understand what they are versus where exactly what you're talking about when we were first starting, like what, five, six years ago, we were kind of like bumbling through it. Um, we knew we needed to post that day. So let's figure out like where our content was. Um you started with us, I think, around the time that we were doing um, that, like, either Clico Mail or, like, Clico Journey um, mm -hmm. pop-up tour for Above Clico, which is a champagne brand. And what we were doing at that time was working with a content creator. What did we even call them at that time if we weren't calling them creators? Probably, yeah, like, Instagrammers. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Um, but we were working with a local Instagram photographer in the markets where we were having like pop-up events or weekends. And I think, you know, Michelle, that's something that really changed, I believe, the way that we built out content for all of our brands going forward, because we saw that was such a success to actually create something that was custom and relatable for our audiences rather than pull from the stock photo libraries. Um, I know that seems so just basic social media now, but at the time, I really do think we were one of those first brands to really sync dollars into custom content investments. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And we were also were the first, I think, at least that I had seen to not only post a photo from those photographers, but to then credit them in the caption. Yep. And I feel like a lot of brands caught on to that after the fact, which is amazing because you're not just white labeling your content. But I remember that was one of the reasons creators were so excited to work with us because they got the spotlight on them as well. It wasn't just a job behind the scenes. Totally. And, and you know, what's so interesting about that? I do believe that sort of, um, that content first, like creator first approach for, for you and I and our team was so important and so ingrained into like our like livelihood, but how that started was, you know, we wanted sort of like, if we were going to partner with someone in Austin, we wanted the Austin audiences to get excited about them. So we wanted like their name to kind of like be attached. Like this was sort of like, I guess, influencer marketing, but photographer marketing, you know, at that time, like we didn't have the budgets to work with who people who would have called themselves like true blue influencers. Um, but I think the thing too, and it's, and again, it's like hindsight's twenty twenty. but like you and I, we were figuring stuff out, but like we wouldn't 
I wouldn't ever have called ourselves like creative directing at that time. It's sort of like we we had this strategy and we knew what needed to be done. And we leaned so heavily on these awesome content partners that we found to help us figure out how to bring that to life. Um, I think we learned a lot from them too. But in that situation, we like gave them sort of like this broad strokes shot list and we're like, please bring your point of view to the table. We did that because like we didn't know anything about the markets we were shooting in, but then it ended up just being something that was really magical. And and also too, for our brand who had been around for, gosh, at that time, like 250 years, you know, to have kind of like this modern lens or point of view that was so special. I feel like another reason people loved working with us, not to toot our own horn, is that we really look to our partners for their creative expertise. Like we were never holding anyone. What is it? Flame, what is it to the fire? That's saying, I don't know what it is. Um, but <laughs> I don't know. Flame to the fire? What is it? I, I have no idea. Anyways, we were never like, you have to do this and it has to be exactly like this and no ifs, ands, or buts. We obviously had guardrails and guidelines for them, but, and there are definitely big no's and do's and don'ts, but we really leaned on our partners to then put their spin on what they were doing, which I think is the most fruitful of partnerships. And I don't think that all brands necessarily get that piece and it really is debilitating to them. I 100% agree. So this is where you and I could talk forever about this. And I also think this is something that maybe is a little unique just to like our ethos and our approach to the industry in general. Um, Having worked on a ton of brands at this point, like you're completely correct. Like some brands just aren't open to that. Like they like the control. They like the rigidity. Um, and I think something that, I mean, and frankly, it was a fight. Um, and I think we did well to educate the people we are working with from both brand and content perspective, but we do have to fight for that sort of like creative wiggle room and freedom, you know, especially as I think the industry became like more standardized, like there was a little bit more of a playbook for social media, even our brands that we were working with for a long time that kind of let us color outside the lines, tried to tighten that um, chokehold just a little bit, right? But I feel like we were always able to find the balance. Um, As you know, I am a fan of the Creative Juicy podcast. And I do believe it was in your episode with Erin Vasquez, you were sort of saying that when we'd approach like our clients, it was sort of like, okay, creator, if you have a crazy idea that feels like a little audacious, maybe a little wild, play by our rules first, and then we'll also try to sell that in. You and I were just always wanting to do something different. It was a little bit of a rebel spirit, I feel. (laughs) That's why we got along so well. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Especially not being in the agency anymore. I think the way it was structured was really unique and the reason for how or why we were able to do as much as we did. So I guess just for further clarity, how our agency was structured is Sydney and I sat on, well, Sydney technically started on a different, you were a digital team and then you got pulled into the entertainment lifestyle team and then back out to digital. Um, Right. Yes. Yes. So I started out as there was like a a small little social like satellite team. And then, um, frankly, over the course of like two or three years, this was pre-mish, PM in my life. Um, a lot of people quit. <laughs> and I was one of the last people standing. I think at that time it was fashion, entertainment. I can't even remember. But all of our bigger clients at that time were on the entertainment team. So um, I I don't remember if I asked or if 
or if I was asked. But at some point, I got ingested onto the entertainment team. And that was actually, I think, one of the best things that ever happened to to me in my career, right? Because even though up to that point, I was sort of working in social media and silo, um, part of the value of coming to our agency was the fact that we did offer sort of like that one-stop shop service for communication. It's like, if you got a social media scope, you also had a matching PR one. So we always worked so closely with our counterparts who were publicists. But when actually getting ingested onto the entertainment team, it wasn't like I had this idea layer in. It was sort of like we were really approaching all ideas, strategies, and concepts together from like the brainstorm stage. And I think what we saw was just that we created programs that were so equal parts strong at every touch point. And I learned a lot about just kind of like full funnel communications that way. You know, I wouldn't deign to be a good publicist now, but I can I can speak the language, you know, and I can really understand what a strong strategy is. And it's those, I think, touch points in our experience that make us very special because we're not just sort of social in a silo. We actually can connect the dots with other practices, whether it's digital marketing, paid social or, you know, publicity. I guess that is, I mean, our agency was traditionally a PR firm. So the fact that we just sat on the digital team meant that we worked on anything that fell under the digital umbrella. So it wasn't just content. It wasn't just influencer. It wasn't just paid media. It wasn't just whatever it may be. And so that's why we, you know, we didn't have an in-house creative team that we hand, we would hand off projects to or an in-house creative director or an in-house analytics team. We would measure all the performance. So we, we basically were a jack of all trades, which I think was really hard for each of us in looking for new job opportunities because other agencies aren't structured that way and they're looking for specialists. And we were always generalists. We're generalists. We are, we are general surgeons. We are the Meredith <laughs> Grays of our industry. No, I think actually, Mish, that's really, that's really astute. So I think just to take... Um, everyone sort of through this. So you're right. Like the way we were structured, like we were a team of social media strategists. When we say social media strategists, I mean, that was even a job title that was on like the fourth iteration of like our team. Like we were making up job titles here. Like we didn't know what we were doing. Like I, I'm trying to think of what my first job title was, but it it wasn't anything near like what I thought it would have been toward the end. Um, But essentially, we are a team of strategists, and we actually had opportunities to build and grow a creative department. So there was even like this little window. I don't know if you were with us, but the agency did hire kind of like a creative director who was sitting there creating digital content for brands. But we didn't want anything to do with that because we didn't want our content to like be shot in a studio. Like we wanted real life scenarios. Like we avoid studio whenever we can, because we want to create content that someone can like see themselves like experiencing, you know, scenario in. So we, we swerved that hard. And then we had the bulk of like the digital business. And so over time, that sort of like fizzled out and that became no more. And then over time, the fact that we did sort of outsource content teams and we kind of like played it like we match make, like we find the best content partner for you. That kind of became, in my opinion, um, our primary like unique selling proposition, you know, like the fact that we kind of like have the idea, but can also see it through. And we bring all these like unique ideas to the table. Um, the clients that really like loved us for that and embraced us for that is I think the the client's work that maybe we're the most proud of um, collectively between you and I. Um, 
And so that's like a little bit of like how we got to where we were. Now, here's what I'll also say, you and I, <laughs> um, having worked together for so long and frankly, having our team be, be so, so, so small, um, I think over time we really realized what we like to do and we became very good at what we like to do. And then that's what we offered and sold to our clients, right? So we loved this content piece. Like we love to see that through. The highlight of our days was like working with these content partners and they're amazing people, but also the work was incredible also. And that was such a, a big deal for us that we never let that go. And even though we would look at other agencies or I would from an organizational standpoint to try to figure out how do I scale this team? How do I model this team? How do I be more like these like bigger agencies and create processes that maybe are a little more standard? There was a little bit of like, we can't do that because we don't want to, because we didn't want to lose a little bit of that like general practice spirit. And 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 you're right. I think for both of us, it, it was harder to to move on in our careers because we were, we were good at a lot of things. And, and I think it's, it's actually very interesting because um, prior to becoming a contractor myself, when I was thinking about exploring other opportunities, um, I spoke to a woman who in a way has become like very much like a pure like mentor to me. And she was sort of just like, no one wants a Swiss army knife, like at your level in your career, you have X amount of years of experience under your belt. Like, employers want to find an expert at one thing. And I just remember being like, so shocked to hear that. I mean, of course it made sense, but up to that point, I mean, I was so proud. Like yeah, my, you can do it all. Yeah. Like my, like I, my stake was in the ground on the fact that like we could do a lot, we could do everything. And she was just like, you got to choose a lane. And it frankly was because I, <laughs> again, a rebel spirit or like maybe call this my rigidity, but I just, I didn't want to do that. Like I couldn't imagine only doing of like all the five things I love to do in the day to only be doing one of them. I couldn't imagine that. And that ultimately is a little bit of like why I am a contractor now is um, that ability to kind of like pave my own way and, and still kind of like take on the projects that allow me to be, you know, more than one thing. Mm -hmm. I think, I mean, that's exactly one of the reasons why I had this idea for this podcast in the first place is because I left the agency. I went in-house at a brand and we had an in-house creative team and I love the creative director and they're a super talented team, but I was, I have been missing working with just creative partners in general and just being able to collaborate and work with artists and people with great ideas. And so I was thinking, Oh, I should, I should catch up with everyone. I miss them. And then I thought, well, maybe other people are interested in these conversations too. Hence creative juicy. And here we are. It's funny looking back on it, and it's funny thinking about how social media has changed since you started at the agency, since I started with you. If you had to, I mean, just speaking of trends, if you had to describe the different stages of social, how would you describe it? Oh my gosh, I wish I could chart a timeline for us. So I'll sort of just tell you kind of like my perception and the social that I got like super excited about. And I sound like such a dinosaur when I say this now, which also is funny because I'm nowhere near. But there was kind of like this for me, this golden age of social media. And this really was just like hearkening back to like Oscar PR girl, DKNY PR girl when like 
Lucky Magazine, like when editorial outlets had like really distinctive voices, it's like you'd follow brands on Twitter for like the person behind them. And and if you knew, you knew who that person was, you know, and that also made it a little fun and exciting. But this was a time when you could do things first. And like, again, it was like the headline news. Like, I remember for Veuve Clicquot, this is one of the brands that we've worked on the longest. So it probably will come up a few more times in this conversation. But we hosted a dinner And typically, I mean, that's like very common practice for, you know, PR teams to to interact with editors and things like that. But um, for this dinner in particular, we also invited influencers and we invited these social media managers for brands and like had little hashtags on like the name cards and like invited them to live post like this champagne tasting dinner. I mean, that's something that like, again, for some of these people listening and so just like in the playbook chiseled in stone like this is something that we did that even got like a headline about like our approach on like biz bash or something like that because people weren't seeing that or doing that and also people weren't treating influencers who at the time had blog spots who at the time were called bloggers like editors and there was like I remember Oscar Piagrel launched their collection or something like or Oscar de la Renta launched their collection like on Pinterest like there were those moments of just like dang you know it really just felt like a race to space and it really just felt like you could innovate in such clever and special ways um and what diluted that I think a good amount like was definitely like the rise of of influencers like no one can deny how much that shaped our industry but also when Instagram began moving toward more of like a paid platform you're not going to see like sort of roundups of like the best in class brands on social media anymore. I mean, frankly, there's just too much to filter through, but what I can be proud of, even if it feels a little dusty, is like we were in headlines, like you're the top 25 brands to follow on social media. And if Buff Clico was one of them, like that was a freaking good day. You know, when we launched our Tumblr, like we had an article about that too. Like all that stuff was, was really cool, but that was definitely like a time. Um, I think my lens is really like very wine and spirits focused, even maybe a little luxury focused. Um, I do think exclusivity, maintaining exclusivity while on social media kind of felt like a little bit of a push and pull. Social media at its core is, you know, kind of like community spirit and like participatory exposure. And that was always a balance that we had. Can you describe exclusivity for anyone who wouldn't know? Yeah. So I think it's this idea. I mean, if you have a product that has like a thousand dollar price point, like you can't really talk about it. Like it's your everyday cup of coffee, <laughs> you know, like the way that Starbucks would. And and you also can't really like lean into like meme culture or some of the more playful trends on social media, because that would not like behoove yourself as a luxury brand, you know? And so there was a little bit of kind of like knowing in terms of like little trends that did pop up, like knowing what to participate in um, versus not um, from a brand content perspective. Um, But I really think, and this is something Michelle, you and I worked really closely on in 2020. I think the pandemic kind of just like rocked everyone um, in this industry. I mean, everyone the world over for so many different reasons, but in this industry, I feel like social media was getting like so produced like so calculated, like gone were the days you were posting anything in real time. Like there wasn't even a hashtag for a latergram anymore because everything was a latergram kind of, you <laughs> yeah, know, great point. And I think the pandemic one, like we had to figure out how to talk to our audiences. Like what, what role does a 
champagne brand play in people's quarantine life. Maybe it doesn't. Um, So we had to change our tone of voice. We also had to change the types of content we were creating. So actually something interesting about our approach um, was always working with content partners to like showcase their lives. Um, I feel like we didn't have to stretch what we were already doing too, too much from a content engine standpoint, because we were able to still work with these partners to like be at home with them. But for some of these other brands where they had two huge commercial shoots a year that like rocked them to the core and like they didn't know what to do with themselves. Um, I think what we're seeing now is a lot of sort of like unproduced content. TikTok has a lot to do with that. People are now trained to sort of forgive, I think, some of the um, the things that I think used would have given us shivers four years ago. Like it, content would have to be perfect before it was placed. And, and now I think we have this understanding that like you can like forgive, forget and move on like very quickly. Um, I think it's funny thinking about the ebbs and flows, because if you think about Instagram, for example, and what an Instagram post was seven years ago, it was just a photo from an event, for example, and then it gets to be more curated and you with, as the platform grew, you cared more about what was on your feed, but then things got too curated and then you wanted it to be more real life. Same thing with bloggers. I mean, They had a platform where they had some sort of perspective on the world, whatever that may be. Then their platform became so pretty, for lack of a better word, and so curated and perfect that then things went the exact opposite. And then if you wanted to be successful, you had to be more real and more raw and not put those filters on your photos. So it's like a constant and the onset of new platforms changes everything, but it is just a constant ebb and flow, I think, between curation and Instagram versus reality. Yeah. But then where is that balance? Because if you're a brand, you don't want just reality. Like reality doesn't cut it. So how do you make something that looks real, but still like has the kind of spin on it that you want? It's, it's hard. And, and hello, dear listeners, this is what keeps us up at night. (laughs) Um, It's, it's a tough thing to do, but I also think like for anyone in social media or who has stayed in social media, it's also like a sick challenge that we all have. Um, I had a one of my very first supervisors um, once told me, and this was like early stage career, like probably my first year. She had said that, um, you know, for social media, you have to relearn your job every three months. And I remember at that time being like very scared, like, <laughs> like I'm just getting used to this. Um, but now... I can kind of look back on that. And of course, I remember this 10 years later, but I can kind of be like, all right, like, well, this is what excites me, like working in a landscape where there is an opportunity for for change and where things don't feel like stale is, I think, something that is exciting to be a part of. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's also it's it's not easy. Yeah. No, I remember we were talking about this when we were together last week. I remember when Instagram stories launched. And walking to work that day, being like, oh, no, we're going to have to (laughs) create, do more. Michelle, I don't remember my physical reaction to that. But like, (laughs) in my mind, (laughs) in my mind, like how I remember this morning. So I must have like already been at work or something. I remember like we had these roller chairs. I just remember wanting to melt onto the floor and hide under my desk. Like it was that kind of just like, oh, no-ness. Um. Because I also think, you know, you and I having worked in 21 plus brands, like 
higher price point stuff. Like there was a little bit of like, oh, snap, Snapchat at the time it was Snapchat, not just Snap. Snapchat's not for us. Like we rise above, like we're, we're kind of like too refined for that. And then when Instagram stories kind of came about, which was like, you know, a little bit of like a copy paste of Snapchat at the time, we were just like, oh no, um, you got to get a handle on it. Now I do think what's interesting to know, and this is something that if you're not on the brand side, you may not really realize this, but everything that we do from a brand strategy or social media content perspective, it's an investment. Like it's dollars, it's money. So from a marketing perspective, it's really hard to spend money on something that's ephemeral or something that will disappear, right? So we had like this real struggle of sort of figuring out how do we even like embrace Instagram stories when it it frankly was just so much more important to keep the lights on on our feed because like that content was sticky, static and just stayed there and we could see it. I feel like it wasn't really until highlights came out, which I don't know the timeline of when that happened, but that's when we finally could start to embrace Instagram stories as a medium for our brands, like a really viable one. And even now, or, you know, even in those last few strategies that we were pulling together, we would tell our clients like, okay, like here are the different platforms you should be on. And we would actually separate Instagram and Instagram stories as like two different mediums because you are communicating in two very different ways. And we really wanted our, our clients to really understand that also. That, yeah, that's an excellent point because everything we did for our brands had to be approved by the clients, which meant we had to sell it in. And it's not just sharing an idea and them saying, okay, run with it. It's having a strategy, having a deck, having examples, having an inspiration board. And so you're right. That's exactly what it was. When highlights came out and we knew that our investment would be stuck somewhere, that's when we could put the time towards it because otherwise we don't have the bandwidth. We were, we were client services. We had a number of clients. We couldn't do this for everyone. I feel like it's a little different now with CPG brands. If it's maybe one founder and it's their vision and it's their voice and they can do whatever they want with it and be as raw and whatnot. But when you're in these big organizations, it's not like that. No. And I think what we were, we were lucky with, um, frankly, in our career, I I will say probably for the bulk of our time together um, at our agency, we had brands who are really sort of like down to embrace social media, but we also encountered some brands who were just like very, frankly, rigid and conservative. And it wasn't, it was a virtue of just like the, the red tape in the organization, like submitting content calendars to a client for approval is one thing. And for those listening, a content calendar is like this photo, this caption, this date, um, our client approves that and sometimes it's fine. But then we had other scenarios where that content calendar would have to also go to a legal team to validate, to make sure it was compliant. What that then does, um, just for y'all to know, is like that takes out any of kind of like the the recency of a post. If you're having to draft this post three months in advance, you know, it, it just, it changes social media a little bit. I think when we look at brands who... The brands I enjoy following on social media, I mean, frankly, I don't think belong to like these larger organizations or groups, as you're saying, Michelle. I think they're kind of more of these like DTC or like startup style brands who are maybe a little more like audacious and like vibrant in like what they do. They see a trend, they execute, you know, they can comment on things that like maybe we would never have been able to do as like a larger 
brand that sits a part of like a larger group. Um, but, th- but that is a telltale sign, like who has like independent sole ownership versus like who has to report into a client that reports into a CMO that reports into a president that reports into, you know, people in Europe. Um, it makes a big difference on what you can do on social media. It's funny to think about because we are obviously champions for our clients and had their best interests at heart. But I also think just by nature of how we grew up in the industry, if you will, we also were champions for the partners we worked with, whether they were content creators or influencers. For example, the idea of just gifting a product to an influencer and expecting a certain kind of return, you and I were always very clear we cannot guarantee this. You can only guarantee X, Y, Z when you have payment and you have a contract. And I feel like we really championed who we worked with because we understood how much work went into it. And when you're on the brand side or you haven't had that kind of inside look on everything that goes into being an influencer, for example, they just don't have that perspective. And then that creates friction because, yeah, we're your agency partner and you want us to do something and you know, we're essentially telling you no but, or that won't work. Sure. But that won't work. And that just doesn't, that never went well. I like, I like that word you used friction. Um, no, that's completely it. Actually something that we were talking about just a little earlier, um, made me kind of want to bring this up too, because, um, the, the easier thing to do when you're in a client service role is to just yes them and execute. Um, we, we were like, we did, we were tactful. If we said no, like I would say we would try to never say the word no, we would kind of just be like, it was an education. Like we really felt like we just had to educate our clients so much. And we also challenged them a lot. I mean, frankly, I look back on it. I actually think it's probably pretty rare to have a social media client for 10 years, just given how crazy the space is and how cluttered it is. And, and frankly, how much burgeoning talent and creative agencies there are out there. The fact that we retained our clients, I think, was a lot of it because um, we're not complacent. We're not complacent in work nor in life. You know, like we really, I think, like challenged the system. And like if our client was giving us a bad brief, we didn't have to sit there and rewrite it, but we would. Yeah. <laughs> you know? That's why yeah. they kept us around. But it also like made our lives just a little harder. But like we weren't going to, we didn't want, and this is, I think, um, I'm wondering, have you guys talked about ego at all on this podcast? I think it's a no. little bit of an ego situation too, like a creative or an artist's ego. Like, you know, we didn't really want to attach our names to something that we weren't super proud of. And But then I can then say that, but then also be really proud of all the work that we've done because we fought for like the integrity of that project. Yeah. You know, Um. Yeah. It's kind of it's kind of <laughs> interesting. But yeah, I think, you know, something else when I was in college, I interned for a video production company in Austin. So I went to University of Texas at Austin, as did Michelle Hookham Horns. Um, and I interned for this video production company. And one of the reasons it's so interesting because, you know, hindsight, I can like I can like pick and pull from like my experiences, no matter where they were from like internships to now about like what actually like propelled and drove me forward. Like before I wanted to be a publicist, I wanted to be like a writer or a journalist or an editor. And then I chose like that PR track because everyone was like, journalism is dead. You know, people were saying this in like 2007, 2008. Um, 
And I was like, okay, advertising or PR. PR is more writing. I'm really good at words. Um, And then social media, there's a lot of writing in social media, which is also what people don't realize. But I think what you can sort of see what bubbles to the top is like stories and storytelling. Um, And so that's something that I can like say now, like I like to tell brand stories. But when I interned for this video production agency, I think that was really crystallized at that time because all we were doing was telling like visual narratives for these like startup brands in Austin. And, but like in working at that agency or that production team, I saw that production process like firsthand. And it's like super humbling to see how many hours of pre-production Like being on set for a shoot is like, frankly, the easiest part and the smallest part of it. And then like the hours in post-production and then like hearing the edits and just like everything that goes into this process. And I think that that knowledge really showed up for me and then ultimately for us together when we started working and outsourcing to creatives because we understood their process and really understood where they were coming from. We were really good about understanding the value of the work. And also being really respective of a process. Like we knew we couldn't go back to square one after we were already like at square 12. And and sometimes that did create friction or uncomfortable conversations with our client. But then again, it's all in education. And I think we were able to really balance that super well. But again, that was sort of like a push and pull that comes alongside with being a middleman. The education piece, I remember, it was like whenever we got a new uh, team member on a client team, for example, that was always a big undertaking, not because it's a new personality and someone to build a rapport with, but because we had spent so much time educating our clients up until a certain point to where it was kind of like you have to enroll in school again. It's like we had to be teachers again. And just with the amount of work, I remember that felt daunting. And of course, we were happy to do it, but just felt like an additional barrier because a lot of people didn't understand or don't understand our perspective on things. But even titles, I mean, I remember once you were like, should we put, should we be producers? And I remember being not wanting social media in my title as I was like going up the ladder because I was, I thought that wouldn't look good to other employers have, it feels, uh, what's the word? I don't know. Trivial. Yeah. Social media strategist, which we were so much more than that. But I feel like now the term is people embrace the term social media and titles so much more. In the past year. Yeah. Maybe even like, I think there's a lot of conversations around now what it takes to work in this industry I felt the same way as you. I I preferred digital, mm-hmm. but then I also felt a little bit like I was um, like not truly digital because I wasn't doing like actual digital marketing. I, I frankly was doing social media and a lot, but 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 we always felt like what was more. And I think that's um, again like ego. <laughs> You know, what you want, I mean, frankly, I mean, you want a title that really reflects everything that you do. And I think what we did sort of recognize now, we even talked about it here today, is that we did do more than just social media strategy. We were also creating that content, but we're not just like content producers. We're also social media strategists. So how do you bundle all of that into a title? Yeah. And the content isn't only for social. It can be on a billboard. It can be on a website. It can be for an app. In a coffee table book. I mean, that is something that I actually um, do want to sort of brag on us both a little bit in is the fact that 
when we started creating content the way that we wanted to create content, I mean, we won the advertising budgets from our clients. Like, and these were huge budgets that we frankly didn't know what to do with. I remember being like, you know, if you thought Instagram stories was scary, that was scary. But also just like looking at how much like our budgets were ballooning year over year. That was really nervous for me, like scary for me to figure out how to spend that money. But frankly, um, our, our work started replacing advertising campaigns for paid social. Like we started seeing our work in store windows. Like um, ultimately like Buff Clico came out with a coffee table book just a couple years ago. And oh my gosh, I have a, ver- I have two of those books. One of them I keep out and like nice and pretty. The other one I went and like truly tabbed every single one of our photos that we had produced or created. And I'm getting like the chills even talking about that. I'm like, that's probably one of the cooler things that's ever happened to us. It was indirectly, it was indirect, but I think it was also very cool to be able to to share with our, I'm using air quotes, Instagram photographers, the fact that we got them published in a coffee table book. Like that is categorically cool to, to know that your work can like live on in this way. Um, One of my proudest moments, I would say is, I mean, I, you know, I, love Pinterest. I always have. I would joke that I'm a pinfluencer because I have, I don't know, 2000 followers. This was before Pinterest changed. And anyway, I was scrolling through Pinterest as I always did at night because it relaxed me and I enjoyed it. And one of our photos from, uh, I believe Amy Stone took it in the Hamptons was just in my feed and just come in my daily routine coming across a photo that we produced. That was like a stop in your tracks. I think I have a screenshot from that day. Um, And I feel similarly about the book. I mean, the back cover of that book is that shoot with Daniel Castro. And I think what was so cool is we had ideas. Like even we didn't just lean on creative partners for ideas. You and I came up with really creative ideas like the Hotel Du Mar video tour with Ann Street Studio. That was fully, we go to a room of the chateau, focus on a fabric, and then overlay in this kind of graphic way a video tour of that room. That was our idea that we could then fully execute on with the collaboration of a creative partner. So I think that's also why I liked my job so much was that we could be creative. It wasn't just outsourcing and managing products or projects. It was our creativity, too, and pushing that through to our clients. Exactly. And this is why we're a little bit of like these rogue little agents in our industry, because I think that was truly I can look back on like my career today and be very proud of a couple of things. Like one of them is that I I was many things, but I do feel like I was very good at running a team. Like I I loved being like a team leader or like boss. Team mom team mom. Yeah. I love being a team mom. I really, really did. And, um, I loved seeing people grow, like being proud, like sometimes even like Michelle, like with you, like if you were talking to a client or doing a presentation, like I seriously would just like be beaming. Um, I'm just so proud of, of everyone and just seeing people grow into like these really amazing, um, frankly, girl bosses was, was really humbling and, and special for me, but the creative piece also. So you bring up this hotel do my project, but I'll never forget, um, this was like a pickle for us. And I just remember sitting there with you. Like, I think it was like after work, it was that holiday program that we had with the tree. Do you remember that? Yeah. Where we wanted to keep the shape of a tree in our feed. Yeah. Um, 
I just remember sitting there, like you and I had like graph paper and we're trying to like figure out how to make this work. And, and but that's like what we could do was like, we'd come up with these really creative ideas. I also think the other thing that's really good about us is we weren't just like fluffy, big ideas. Like we'd actually like be able to then turn them into a tangible, mm-hmm. but we always knew we had to like gut check it with the creative partner at some point in the process, even before it got to our client to like make sure this could happen. And I will say 75% of the time, the creator that we bring in or want to work with has an idea also that like helps just like make the larger dream even better. Oh yeah. Sam Cannon and the presence, the stacked presence in our oh, yeah. feed. That was a, yeah. Some of the stuff we did, I'm like, it was it was a little, um, it was before the time. It was different. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then I think slowly with, of course, ads and Instagram changing as it did, and it became much more commercial and we couldn't play as much. And it just, it evolved as everything does. I think it's a little sad, you know, it if is. I'm completely honest. I, I don't think, I don't think brands are going to innovate in the same way. You know, and I also think that um, gone are the days where you know exactly where your audience is because there's so many other platforms. Like, I really do, in my heart of hearts, believe this. I think that you were seeing kind of like migrations platform to platform. Like, first it was Facebook, then it was Twitter, then it was Instagram. Um, Some people were like on Snap and Instagram, but like Snap would have never been like their primary social media platform. It was, in my opinion, a messaging platform. Um, But then when TikTok came along, I think what you really saw was like the and in the equation. Like you can be on Instagram and then you're also on TikTok and you found mutually exclusive like um, benefit from like being on both platforms. And I think that there will continue to be more platforms being introduced. I'm sure there's some... Silicon Valley people thinking of the next big thing, but um, our audiences are so um, decentralized now. So, and and I think that too. That's a different. That's a different um, uh, mindset for people in our positions too. It's like you can't be good at everything anymore. Like, so really thinking about like how can you be good at only just a couple things you know, and, and that conversation about like, at what cost also, like, Mm -hmm. am I losing by not being on TikTok right now? You know, you have to really have those types of conversations, but it's also a resourcing thing too, because who's going to keep the lights on, on like eight different platforms. Right. Right. I think, okay. So from where we sit on, whether it's agency, contractor, whatever, we understand the brand perspective. I want to ask you a few questions because I think it would be helpful for people to understand from from where you sit um, today and agency life, whatever it may be from the perspective that you have. So what to you makes, I don't want to say a good content creator, but what, what do you look for in a content partner? Like what are the qualities or traits that stand out to you as a, a thumbs up to work with them? I, this is like a me thing. I'm like, get on the phone with me and let's talk about this project. If you only want to look at that piece of paper and then like go and execute, I'm, I'm frankly, I'm already seeing red flags in this process. Like that's just something that we've learned the hard way in my opinion, but also just a telltale sign in my, again, in my opinion of like a willingness to really meet us and, and again, work together on a project rather than just like receiving a brief and like running with it. Yeah. So that is something that is critically important for 
for me and like making sure that we like achieve our goals. Yeah. Cause I think it feels transactional where of course it is, we're, we're paying you for work, but we want it to be a collaboration and we want to, yeah. Right. Um, what about, what do you look for in a team member or in an employee? You know what? I really, this, this is actually really interesting because I think that um, especially when you're starting out in an agency, for those of, of you all that have never worked in an agency, I think it can be very intimidating. Like we had our little digital team where I don't know where we, um, how big we were toward the end, maybe 10 team members. I don't even know, but um, we had our little intimate group, but then you kind of participate in like brainstorms with a larger your PR team counterparts. And then it ends up being like 20 people in a conference room or 20 people on a Zoom. And that can be so, so, so intimidating. But I always just so appreciated and also encouraged. Like, I want to hear from from you all. You know, like, I think even if you have these thoughts and they're hard to articulate, I'm like, email them, you know, or just something like that. I think, I think that, um, I think we can call that a couple of different things. I think we can call that collaboration, Um, I think we can call that creativity, um, but I think we can also call that a little bit of like challenging, you know, and you were never, you were never afraid to do that. And I can think of other people who I just like love to work with who are never afraid to challenge processes or things or question them. And that to me is the sign of a perfect partner or or team member, Um, someone who's willing to sort of just like use their voice in whatever way that they feel comfortable to do so. Yeah. I remember in one of my yearly reviews, <laughs> I was told, you have amazing ideas, save them for the end, because we need other people to feel comfortable bringing their ideas in, which is valid feedback. Because I think I would just have an idea and spit it out. And I wouldn't be cognizant of the younger people on the team who may not have the confidence to do so. But it was... Michelle, I... Okay. Again, listeners, Michelle would show up sometimes to brainstorms with like a packet of like completely baked ideas. Like she would be like, okay, so we could do this precisely. And it was the coolest thing ever in the world. But again, I feel like some people would be like, um, (laughs) yeah, yeah, of course. But that's, but that's like you, it's like, you really understand like the assignments, like you understood what it was coming from. I also feel like over time, like, and this wasn't happening in your first, like one or two years, you know, it's like you found your confidence also. And I think expressing and articulating your creativity, which for me, I think is one of those harder things. Like, actually, that's a big difference for me in kind of like this contractor life. And then where I was in agency, working with a team every day, you wouldn't think it, but you're like talking to people all day long. Um, and this contractor life, I am, I'm not doing that as often. And I'm finding myself like, not, not really um, grabbing on to like, the prickle of an idea as much. And so I, I've kind of like understood. And frankly, I'm gonna be completely honest, your podcast helped me here. Because I, I don't know who's I was listening to. But I was like, okay, for me, ideation and creativity, it's social. Like, I, I'm not one to pick up a notebook and like journal an idea that I have, but I do need to talk it out. So I was like, I need to create opportunities to be able to like have these dialogues with people or else it frankly just like moves to the back of my brain. Um, and I'm, I'm grateful that I'm realizing this like 
you know, two, three months in versus like a year in, because I want to do something about that because I don't want to lose like that sparkle that we used to have working together in team environments. I can imagine. Okay. So you're a contractor now. So what, like what, what's your pitch? What can you do for brands? Okay. When I stepped down from my role at the agency, um, there were a couple of like factors into play with that. One of them being that I had only had one job. You know, I think that's very rare for someone to have just that one job for 10 years, especially in our industry. Um, Agency hopping is like very uh, popular. That's typically how you get raises and promotions. I do feel like our agency was very good at sort of retention and kind of like allowing us to grow within the group. But it did get to a point where I was sort of just like, I I must diversify my portfolio. And I, and I say that in only like the kindest way. I wouldn't have stayed at this agency for 10 years if I didn't feel like I had been growing like within that, right? So I have to really compliment the leadership there for allowing that. Um, but I wanted to diversify. I was having a little bit of a hard time. Um weaseling my way into the brands or businesses I wanted to work with, with frankly, at that time, I wanted to work with like upstart, like DTC startup brands, right? So it kind of was this really interesting, it was a total step change. You wouldn't think that social media really varies type of brand to type of brand, but it 100% does. I know I'm really good at marketing wine and spirits. I know I'm probably really bad at marketing beauty. You know, it's just like, I don't like live and breathe it as much. But then when you look at like these DTC brands where they're really looking at sort of like e-com, like ROI and things like that, I didn't have that experience because all of my brands having been wine and spirits, selling was never the first priority. It wasn't even on the priority list or objectives when we were building our campaigns because they were so large and had been around since the 1700s. So so I was kind of like, I'm going to go work for myself and figure out how to work with smaller brands, but that had big dreams. And I'm going to take all the experience that I had learned from like working with these big brands to these smaller brands and kind of pay them there away for that. Yeah. So, and that, that's really where I found myself. It, it's very interesting. So I wouldn't say I'm, I'm DTC quite yet and nor do I feel like that really truly is like the North star, but um, I'm working with, um, a set of brands right now. They haven't launched yet. Um, They launched this summer. They are spirits brands. But what I've loved about this process is that I'm in the weeds with them. Like I'm figuring out sort of like brand identity conversations and, and things like that, which color palettes, you know, things that maybe you wouldn't necessarily think are so involved. Um, in this industry, but I love having that sort of like behind the curtains vantage point and I like to know that I'm building something and, and I'm realizing, and again, you kind of like realize what you were missing once you have it again, you know, but um, I feel like in the agency life with all of our brands that were just so established, there wasn't like that much of change happening and it was very easy to sort of get stuck on the wheel and working with like these newer brands, all you see is um, that opportunity to kind of like shape and grow something and actually like learn from um, you know, test and learn it is a big right. thing that you do, right? I felt and feel the exact same way. I mean, we would reinvent things for our clients and our brand work, of course, but we weren't there at, at the genesis of that brand 
everything we did was based on something or based on some truth for the brand or some origin story or historical context or whatever it may be. But it's so exciting to think about being behind the scenes before anything is even launched because that informs what you can do in the future and how you can grow and having that strategy from the very beginning, just working on that is what excites me. And I think from what you shared, you feel similarly. You're also, you, you're great at beauty brands. We've had some, and I remember I wasn't on the accounts, but the strategies you came up with were brilliant. So any beauty brands listening? Well, that was, it was hard. Like, but that's the thing too. So something I was thinking about, I don't know why I felt like I had to say this on this podcast, but I will. I really dislike the idea of fake it till you make it. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. Mm, And I feel like so Oh, I feel like so much in social media. So we've talked a lot about like doing things first and kind of being like a little anxious about like not knowing what we're doing. I, I like literally would abhor if someone was like, fake it till you make it. I'm like, there is no faking here. We are trying really freaking hard. Like we are, you know, like we are trying our best. And if we succeed, damn, we tried. And if we fail, we went out swinging. Like it's one of those things where, (laughs) but like the, for instance, having worked, okay. So for instance, in the instance of some of these beauty brands um, that you, thank you for complimenting the work there, but having worked on Wine and Spirits for like almost exclusively for seven years, it was a really big step change for me to kind of get in the mindset of like beauty on Instagram. But like, I will tell you, I like bear hugged it. I was like, following all beauty brands for like weeks, really trying to like understand and figure out like how they operate. And it was so, so, so different from like the 21 plus brands that I had been working on. And there was a little bit of sort of just like bumbling through it. But I think that some people would like minimize that and be like, fake it till you make it. Like if you don't feel hundred percent confident and I'm like, no, 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 there was yeah. no thing. Yeah. I- Well, we researched and I tried. I think research, I mean, when you think about it, what we would research, it was constant. It's not just looking up some research paper and looking at the insights they found at the end of it. It's constantly surrounding your feet or following people, whatever it may be, that somehow play in this vein of whatever it is you're trying to do, whatever industry, and just trying to consume and keep up with the trends and understand the conversations that are happening Research, that in and of itself is a full-time job just to understand the landscape. But we would do that, obviously, because we then needed to know how to play in that space or understand what the white space is. What are people not doing in this field that they're doing elsewhere that we can then pull in in, an, in our own interesting way? Yeah, it's it's kind of like this. That That's how we do our jobs really well, right? It's kind of having this like insights driven like approach. But I will say that that also is exhausting. I hope I'm doing a good job about describing also how fun it is to work on social media. But it's also not without its challenges. Because if you think about it, like my, my friends who have never worked in this type of space, like they truly get on Instagram for like enjoyment and pleasure. (laughs) like I I get on Instagram and I I'm never not working like I look at even if it's like a Saturday at 2 p.m like I'm I'm getting on Instagram I'm seeing what's in my feed and I'm taking stock of what brands are doing like that's me working that's not just you know so I think that really changes um your relationship with social media in general you know um when it does feel a little bit like work that's something that I actually you know do struggle with now that I am a contractor is this whole idea of a personal brand. Um, 
I long ago, like just, just didn't really embrace like marketing myself on social media ever uh, because I was also just always thinking about like my brands. And when you're working on your brand so much, like it's kind of hard to work on yourself too. Yeah. Uh, But now it's like, it's interesting. I'm like, all right. So there's that whole adage of like those who can't do like teach. I'm kind of like, well, I kind of have to like do and do (laughs) because I, I, and as a contractor, I am the product, like I am the goods and services. And so it's like, if you look at my Instagram and it's dusty, like, what does that even mean? So it's also been a really interesting step change for myself also, because I found that that makes me a little uncomfortable too, like talking about myself um, in a way, but I do think that's something that's like a little necessary. So I'll just add myself to my client list and see what happens. How do you get your clients? Um, you know what, Michelle, I have to say, um, our, the connections and relationships that we've built, like throughout our years have been the most valuable thing for me right now, um, in in finding new clients. So there's been some clients, um, who are elsewhere from other walks of life who have like come, come back to me, you know, a lot of even our creator friends, um, have kind of just like introduced me as well to um, their friends who either started brands or maybe some brands that they're working on who could use a little bit of help. So everything really has been referral based, of course. I mean, I have a website, again, air quotes, it's password protected. I'm not yet. Oh my God, you have to take that off. I know. I'm not yet ready to unleash that upon the world, but um, it's all been through like relationships and connections. And I I truly do believe, um, I wouldn't like call it like karma, but I do think like what you put in the world like comes back to you. So, you know, um, me and you and our team, like we've always just like worked really hard and we put that like hard work out into the world. People don't forget that. I meant to ask this earlier when we were talking about what makes a good uh, team member and whatnot. What makes a good, what qualities do you look for if you could choose in a client? I'll tell you, I'll tell you what I, what I dislike (laughs) first. I dislike rigidity. Like really like, and, and that's, that's my, I mean, I understand where everybody is coming from like always, but if essentially I always feel like we went out of our way to educate and like share the reason why, like we were never going to put just an idea in front of some of a client without having like a rationale, whether it was qualitative or quantitative as to like why this would make sense. Like that was so, so, so important. If we can't have like a real talk conversation about like how we got here and have that like maybe create a little more of like an openness, that was something that I think I, I struggled with a good amount. I also really, I know we talked a little bit about like collaboration, communication and team members. I think that should happen from like a client perspective also. Like if you kind of like feel like something isn't going the way that it needs to have gone, um, please tell us now and not like after the project's already wrapped, Right. you know, like it's kind of one of those things where I also think that's a learned behavior too. And that comes with client confidence also, but like we can adapt and we can pivot, but we only know what we're told. You know, and so I think a little bit of that is just something if there are any clients or brand people listening, that's something that your agency partner or whoever you're working with would really value is just kind of like that real time dialogue about like where you are. Yeah. I mean, I moved. So I moved from agency to in-house and I was like, I'm going to be the best client ever. And I remember like I was managing the PR team and I my biggest thing was 
or at least how I guess how I would answer this question would be, you have to be humble about what you don't know, because there's nothing more annoying to me than having a client who acts like they know something, but they actually don't. And they're just trying to prove a point or I don't know, whatever, prove their position. And so I'm always really honest about what I don't know. And I look at the agency partners I work with as extensions of an in-house team because you are helping me reach this goal. And recently I put together a, or I sent an invite for a call so I could walk through our brand plan for 2022. And one person from this particular agency joined. And I thought, I said, where is everyone? And they said, oh yeah, I'm just joining. You know, I can relay the information. And that is the biggest red flag to me because, okay, you don't want to understand our our positioning in the market or our our brand ethos or our values, one person from your team is joining, what are you talking about? Like, this isn't the right situation. Isn't that funny? There's so much that I want to comment on from what you said. Like, one, I do think that there's so much value and kind of like, as you have experiences in, in any career path that you have, learning from, honestly, frankly, how you want to be treated. Like I, I remember I had some like tough supervisors, some like tough feedback, and it was a really big point of mine to kind of like lead with kindness, like as a result of that, like I didn't feel like any, no good idea came from fear. <laughs> Let's just say that, you know, and that's just like my example of how you're sort of, how you're treating your agency is how you would have wanted to have been treated having been on the other side. But I also feel like there's a lot of like in our time, working at the agency that we did work at, um, we, we call it like boot camp a little bit too, because I will say that our agency probably was one of the best in class for client services that I, I would have thought that I would ever come across. Like, mm-hmm. like truly like team, we, 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 like that was even a little ism that we had. Like, you know, we did not like to write emails with I, even if it was your perspective, it was a we. And, and I feel like that was really sort of instilled in us. So what you're saying right now about like the I and team, like this one person coming in to like absorb for the masses, that's not really something that we ever, um, that we are. Yeah. It's also, I mean, it's also, it is speaking about being humble. It is humbling because I would find myself in situations where I wanted to share information with our agency partners, but I wasn't the per- like I didn't have that information from the factory in China and I was asking that person for the information they don't have it so then I can't prepare the agency partner team and I realize I'm putting them in a really tough position cuz they don't have the details that they need but I'm literally doing everything I can for it and I'm thinking ah oh, okay I get how it's sometimes it's, it can be really hard being a client <laughs> be really hard that's actually that's something I like that you bring that up because I actually was thinking about this in the context of some of my clients, like the, the ones that I'm saying are heritage brands. It's like, that's hard too. It's like when you're trying to do everything you can to get all the information, um, but you can't, your agency gets frustrated or anxious. Um, but also it's like you're beholden not only to the other people who are submitting this information to you, but also to people who live in another country who just operate on a different timeline. And they might um, not even know the answers either. <laughs> Yeah. And, and I, listen, I'm not perfect and I don't know the best way out of anything, but I'm a big proponent of over communication. 
in every aspect of my life. Like I want to over-articulate. I, if I'm feeling a certain way, I'm going to try to tell you. Um, I don't know if it's just in relationships or work or whatever, but it's like, okay, client, if you're being really honest with me and just being like, I'm trying really hard and this is what I can't get, but here's what I can give you. I'd rather that than like something just going radio silent for weeks and weeks and weeks. And I think that's something that is just helpful um, now, but also that's something that I feel like I learned more of in the pandemic. Like when I didn't have to, when we weren't having like weekly client meetings like anymore, or when you and I weren't sitting like frankly, butt to butt in our little like office cubicle, like we were going to be good collaborators. Like we had to over communicate with one another to be able to do that. And, and I think that that's created a better work process, at least from like my perspective. Absolutely. What advice would you give someone who wants to do what you do? Who wants to do what we do? Mm -hmm. Talk or ask questions, like really figure out what it, what it is that we do. (laughs) And, and I, here's the other thing too, even though I did talk about playbooks in social media, I still think everyone does it differently. Everyone. I think everyone has a different viewpoint of social media. I think it's by virtue of the industry and how quickly that it evolves. There really is not like that, like published textbook or like if there is like if there's if there's a college curriculum right now that studies social media, I really want to read that textbook. I'd love to know what's in it because how could you not like have to do a reprint like three weeks later? Like there's just something new every time. I don't understand it. I really don't understand it. But um I think like know what you're getting into for sure. And also really understand like what it is that you, you like, you know, I think that that's a little bit of how people did become more specialized over time in our space. Michelle is because some people really like love community management. Some people love like engaging with audiences and building community. I, that that's frankly a little bit of like, not what I'm super interested in. Like I want to create the content and see it live and feel really good about seeing it get there, but then I'm on to the next, what's the next project, you know? Um, So I think have conversations with people who are maybe like in this space. So you understand what you're interested in, but I think like more broadly too, just as if you're in, if you find yourself in the social media space, I would say that asking for help is I think the one thing that I can't underscore like enough. I, in hindsight, didn't do that enough in my career. And when I say that, I mean, it's not just like, I'm overwhelmed with work, please help me. It's more of like, I have tons of peers who are in similar positions to me that I just never spoke to about like what I was dealing with on a day-to-day basis. And I found myself now, um, and this kind of was like in my shift to being more of like a contractor, um, really sort of like reigniting a lot of these um, relationships that I had with people who are in similar positions to me and the dialogue and like kind of just sort of like energy that we can have about like the topic of work has been so helpful for me in like navigating like my day-to-day decisions. And it's nothing, I think just like knowing that nothing really feels like super proprietary when it comes down to social media strategy, because we're all trying to figure it out together, you know? So I think that that piece is important. Like finding, I don't want, finding mentors sounds like a little bit like, I don't know, kind of like a platitude, but finding peers even that are going through like what you are going through, like you can really establish, I think more of a dialogue and kinship and it's very helpful. Yeah. That's really resonant, resonant for me. I feel like I've never had a 
a, I don't know if it's formal, informal mentor. I've never gone to one person to ask for advice. I mean, I would go to you, but we worked together for so long. So I think a mentor is typically someone outside of your immediate work relationship or circle or whatever it may be. And I've never had that. And I've always felt, oh, how do I find one? And then it's always felt awkward. And I've reached out to people, but I think your your point on peers, that's, yeah, I'm going to take that to heart. Yeah. Okay, Sid, I have five final questions that I've asked everyone. We may have touched on some of these topics, but I am going to ask them anyway. So question number one is what drives you to create or why do you do what you do? I should have studied up on these. No, it's better. I like it. (laughs) You know, this is sort of just taking a step back before I really answer this question. You know, something that's really interesting is in my adult life, I kind of see myself as a little bit more of a creative person. But over the holidays when I was home with my family in Texas, my mom, and this was just such like a random little conversation. She's She was sort of just like, I'm very surprised that you end up being creative. And I was kind of like, why? <laughs> and and like, I was truly like taken aback. And um, she said that as a kid, I never liked to play pretend, like could not be bothered to play pretend. Mm. Like, I was very like literal. Like maybe I would like pour the coffee or something, but it would need to be like in the coffee. Like I just like could not play pretend. And my mom was like, sure, she's, <laughs> she's going to be very serious. Um, but when I got of like reading age, I was like the most voracious reader. And that I feel like was, I don't feel like creativity. I think that's like a little bit like where I started understanding or or embracing creativity was under the guise of like escapism like for me like every book was like a little escape and I would so just like oh my god if there was like this cute little boy in the book like he would marry me tomorrow even though he's not real like you know just silly things like that I could just sort of place myself in those worlds so kind of like that world building thing is very interesting to me so I guess more linearly I wasn't a creative kid until I started reading. Reading was escapism, building worlds, telling stories, stories is sort of like where I'm at right now in terms of like, I I like that I can tell a brand story and I like that I can do that in a lot of different formats. Like I like that it's become a little more visual. I like that we can play with like still and video formats. I like that every platform has a different way of doing things. Um, And I also think audio, in my opinion, is such a very cool way to tell brand stories that I feel like my brands aren't super warm to yet, but I I do feel like that's something that is a little bit of next. Wow. I'm so glad you didn't think, think on these beforehand because that answer was amazing. (laughs) I did not. Okay. Question number two, this one's fill in the blank. Feeling inspired feels like. This one I have an answer for because I listened to your podcasts. Thank Um, you. Okay, for me, the first thing that popped into my mind was, you know, the emoji with like the three little stars. Yes. That's what it feels like to me. And it's animated. It like glimmers. That's what, (laughs) that's what it means to me. Oh, that's so, that's great. Okay. Maybe I'll put that on your cover art for this episode. Oh, I'd love it. Uh, Okay. Where do you go physically, mentally, digitally to get your creative juices flowing how do you overcome creative blocks? And I want to preface this question because I feel like a lot, 
obviously this is called creative juicy and I'm talking to a lot of artists, but you have to be creative to do what we do. So these questions apply just as well to us. So anyways, where do you go to get your creative juices flowing? You know what? It is absolutely, I think, not what you'd expect. Like, I bet, like, someone's going to answer something really dreamy. Like, I go on walks or I meditate. Like, no. Like, I I kind of thrive in chaos. I'm not going to lie. I do high-intensity dance cardio classes. Um, For anyone that knows, like, knows that I love these classes with a DJ, like, basically hip-hop. And sometimes in, like, the middle of, like, listening to some, like, Rihanna song, I'll, like, get, like, a thought. And, and, and it's, it's funny because it just, like, enters your brain. Like, I think it's a little bit of, like, what is it? Like, endorphins just, like, loosen up your brain. And then you get, like, a thought. And I catch myself because then I, I completely just, like, miss the dance move because my head is elsewhere. <laughs> but that is a common theme that I have. I also get a lot of ideas talking to people. Like, again, like, creativity for me is – I think it's really tough in, in silo. Like – I'm, I'm not really good at this is something I'm working on. I'm not really good about like sitting in like this silent, quiet place and like really working through stuff. I'm always doing something. And so when I'm with people one on one or in groups, just like the conversation can spur thought. And that's something just Michelle and you and my relationship that I've always just been very reverent of, because even we yes, we had to be creative because it was our job for work. But if you and I were to go to like lunch or a happy hour or something or just talk, we never weren't like talking about something and getting excited about what we were talking about. So mm-hmm. um, it's a it's a little bit, I think, like maybe let's call it like dancing and socially for me. <laughs> dancing and dialogue. Yeah. Dancing and dialogue. Nice. Nice. Do you still go to 305? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They've recently added an all choreo class to the lineup, which means usually the class is broken up into three different sections. But this class is just pure dancing. That's my favorite thing to do on Saturdays. That's amazing. Okay. Uh, Okay. If you could tell your younger self one thing or one piece of advice, what would you say? Okay. So this one I do think we kind of hit on. It's that asking for help thing. Mm Mm-hmm. It's never too late to start. Like I'm I'm in my 30s and I don't think I really started asking for help or seeking mentorship even at the peer level until I was like properly 30, you know, and it frankly was out of a place of just like desperation and like not knowing where to go. But now that I'm not in that kind of like um, panic zone or more tenuous zone, like it's that sort of like peer relationships that I can really appreciate that I think makes me like a better person professionally. And then also just sort of like personally, this industry is super, super fast paced. And I'm, I'm actually going to paraphrase something that I think I heard years and years ago on a panel, but it was kind of like social is fast paced, like forgive, forget, move on. I think that you're allowed to make mistakes. And so long as you learn from them, you're good. You know, just don't I don't want to put too much pressure on that idea of like not making the same mistake twice. But it's sort of just like as long as you're learning, you still are moving in a positive forward direction. I think that's I mean, that's how I and I know we look at brands is that they're living, breathing things. And exactly what you just said, you can make mistakes, but then how do you show up and do better in the future? And brands can evolve and change with the times and who knows what's going to happen in this world. And you need to be able to adapt quickly. Um, It's kind of like, it's like a person, really. Final question. What are you looking forward to today? Anything that's keeping you feeling motivated and inspired? 
I'm going to Mexico for 10, 11 days. Um, I go on Sunday and just sort of like what I said a few minutes ago where I'm like, I'm not good at like sitting alone or like being with myself. More than half of that trip is a solo trip. So I will be by myself <laughs> in a foreign country. Um, I do love Mexico, but I I just have never been by myself in that kind of like environment. And so I'm I'm hopeful that I'm confident that I will embrace that experience for sure. But I'm also like really kind of like excited and interested to know just sort of like what kind of um, thoughts or or situations that I, I do kind of like work through um, while having that time to myself. Okay. And I mean, I know your website is password protected, but if someone wanted to work with you or talk with you, how would they reach you? You may slide into my DMs <laughs> on Instagram. Um, Sydney Fazand, just my name. Thank you, Mish, for that plug. Yeah. And then when your website does go live, <laughs> sydneyfazand.com? I'll add it. I'll add it as a link in my bio. Okay. I'll add it to the show notes. <laughs> um, well, Mish, before we close, I do just want to tell you, I'm so proud of you. Like, I really think that what you're doing is so, so, so cool. And I, I love that what started out as like a professional relationship with us, like did become just like a really true, true, true friendship. And I'm sitting here just like very proud and, and excited about what you're doing. So thank Sid, you. For that. Thank you. I'm smiling really big, which no one can see. Well, you have to be on again because I think this has been my favorite conversation to date, but I also just love talking with you. So, oh, Well, thank you for saying that. Um, thanks, Nish. Yeah. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Creative Juicy. If you like what you heard, it would mean so much if you can take a minute to rate and review the show. Be sure to hit subscribe to stay updated on new episodes and follow me at Mish, M-I-C-H, underscore Wainwright on Instagram for more podcast updates. You can also find show notes and a transcript for today's episode at creativejuicypodcast.com. Hope you have a good one. Bye.